Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. Friends, I've got some big news. I've been working on something for you and I'm so excited to share it. I'm not super ready to tell you all about it yet, but sometime in the summer of 2021, I am going to be announcing an advocacy training a training that is for paid special education advocates. If you are interested in getting paid to help people navigate the special education world, I want for you to stay tuned. I want for you to be a part of this training and the community that we build of people that have attended the advocacy training. Stay tuned for that information. I tell you this now, not because I'm ready for you to enroll or to tell you all of the specifics, but I tell you this now because I wanna to talk to you today about something that we are going to address in far more detail in this advocacy training. It's negotiation skills. In the training, I am going to give some really hearty information, some really good, deep information on negotiation, how to actually advocate. You've probably heard me talk on the podcast before about interest-based negotiation. There's all kinds of different leadership skills and negotiation skills that go into this kind of work. When I had Ray Nelson on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, Ray said very simply, you know, negotiation skills are something that people don't practice. People don't practice the art of negotiation. And I can't believe it, but that was such an epiphany for me because I, as an attorney, am constantly practicing my negotiation skills the give and the take, the looking at interest and values, all of those different components, that's stuff that I read about. I attend continuing education. I'm constantly studying and talking to colleagues about how to get to yes, how to negotiate, how to accept something that is, I like to say, yes-able. It's not a scream from the rooftops, yes, we have an agreement, but it's tolerable, it's yes-able. And so this idea of negotiation, that is something that I always knew would take a very strong forefront in an advocacy training, but it's something that I can now say in very, very short words, it's something that we need to practice if we are at the IEP table. So I've been working on a curriculum that does that kind of negotiation training. And I'm diving deep into the materials that I got when I did my 40-hour mediation training. And I'm reading more and more books that I have read or that I have not read. And I'm going back through my highlights and I'm looking to see, okay, how can I kind of incorporate all of these different concepts into something that is true to my style and to the Ashley Barlow Company mission? And while I was doing that, I thought, you know, 
I think people are gonna want just like break it down kind of tips too. You know, I think people are gonna want real life in the moment tips because we can think all day long in, in kind of the top of our headspace about the formal stuff, but sometimes we gotta get down deep into the nitty gritty. And so today I am sharing with you the beginning of that brainstorm. What's the nitty gritty? What do I do in a meeting when the meeting goes sideways? What are some tips that you could have that would help you if a meeting goes sideways? And I'm gonna give you a little preview and tell you it is not very complicated. It's not very hard to try to kind of get a meeting on the next track, to kind of take the meeting from sideways back to straight ahead, to take it from unproductive and rhetorical to productive and interest-based. It's not that hard. But here are three strategies that I use that really help me to get a meeting back on track. The first one is quite simple, and you might do this already by simply just kind of your own intuition, and it is to take a break. Now, I wanna tell you a story about this first because I actually am not the kind of person that intuitively takes a break. Oftentimes, the way that breaks come up for me is because I feel like I need to educate my clients or because I feel like I need to kind of reevaluate my clients' boundaries on a particular issue. You know, if it's money, for example, that's the easiest example. You know, are you hoping for $15,000 in compensatory education or would you be satisfied with $2,500 or $7,500 or something? I need to kind of get those parameters, those boundaries. So that's usually why I intuitively take a break. But I had a meeting um, not too long ago where um, I had talked to my client about parameters and, you know, we are doing a lot of um, compensatory education discussion in special education right now. So students weren't given what their IEP said that they were supposed to have and therefore they did not make progress. Um, and so we are looking at compensatory education claims, you know, to try to get the children um, back to whole, to try to get them back to a spot where they're making progress that they reasonably should have made. And so I was in one of these discussions and I've had many, many, many of these discussions um, this school year. And I had talked to my client before about what my client's parameters were. And the district had offered something that was um, better than the best parameter, um, which was great, you know, because I knew that it was something that we could take. But then with that offer, I said, well, gosh, maybe we could add on this because then there's some wiggle room, you know, maybe we can get kind of the bee's knees of agreements. And so as we're kind of talking back and forth and having this discussion about this add-on service, I think, well, I better like take a break and tell my client kind of what I'm thinking, you know, because there is such thing as too much. A child can get um, you know, therapy fatigue and certainly school fatigue, and we don't want to do too much for a child. So I say to my client, you know what, maybe we should take a break and you and I can talk offline. Um, and you know, can we meet back together in five or seven minutes? And of course the school says fine. So before I took the break, I said, this is what we're going to be talking about. And I said, like, this is the issue, you know, where are we kind of within these boundaries of this add on service that I've asked about? And so I talked to my client and I said, golly, this is great. You know, we got everything that we wanted and now we're talking about an add-on. This is gonna be great. 
And my client said yes. And, and um, my client thought that the add-on would be um, appropriate and that the child would not fatigue with it, etc. And so we come back in and we sit down. And um, without us saying a word, I don't even know who it was, special ed director, somebody in charge, said, you know, we thought about that and we actually have a program um, that's already running this summer where the child could totally get plugged into that. And so we think that's a great idea. We said nothing. We said nothing. And just because they took a break and the school team could talk, they realized that there was a program that was almost identical to what we had kind of dreamed up in a best case scenario. And they were like, well, it's already running and there's a spot. So it is literally free for us to offer this to this family. It is literally free. They want it, we can give it for free and it's appropriate for the child, let's do it. And so we got what we wanted just because we allowed them time to talk. It worked like a charm and that it was not my intention, but it was so, so beautiful. So taking a break can be very, very helpful because it might make the decision makers have time to get on the same page. It also allows me time to talk to my clients as I indicated. So another time, you know, talking about kind of decision makers make um, having time to discuss something. Sometimes when you sit around an IEP table, oftentimes you see somebody that wants to say something but is afraid of saying it because they don't wanna have that kind of harmonious discord that I talk about. They don't wanna instill any conflict, which is completely unhealthy in teamwork. But, and, and what I do is I'll look at them and say, mm, Miss PT, it looks like your wheels are turning. <laughs> what do you wanna say about this? And then they might say it very, very tactfully or they might withhold something. And if that's the case, what I like to do is I like to ask for a break so that that person can say that without me there, without the parent there, so that they can feel like they can speak freely in front of the special ed director or whoever's making the decision, right? The principal, the, the superintendent, whoever it is, they can say something and they don't feel like they're totally selling out the district or going against their, um, you know, their training or their their monetary interest or whatever it is, um, they can say it privately. And so sometimes they say, you know what, why don't we take a break? I want to talk to my client about blah, blah, blah. But it's really because I want them to talk because I see that somebody has an idea that they aren't comfortable sharing in front of me. They might just agree with the parents, but they also might have some kind of um, idea that would be helpful, some kind of workaround, a think outside the box idea. So it might be an agreement that they have with the parents. It might be some kind of vulnerability that they see. They might have some kind of information that they think would help. So sometimes we take a break to get the people on the other side of the table time to talk. Another benefit of a break is it simply shifts the paradigm. It shifts the dialogue. It shifts that discontentedness because it gives it a second for people to kind of process it, right? Sometimes we just need time and that is fine, but sometimes we have to vent. And so if we take a break, then the, you know, 
attorney can say to the school district, um, if the attorney's there, you know, I really see what they're talking about from this interest, can kind of counsel them. Or they can just complain. You know, I can't believe these parents went blah, blah, blah. We gave them X, Y, and Z last year, and now they want A, B, and C. Whatever it is, sometimes it's helpful just to process those things. But it also gives us time to think about the why, to kind of reframe in our own minds why somebody's asking for something. Really look at those interests and values and think, how can I reframe my argument considering these interests and values that I think the other side has? And finally, sometimes a break just gives you time to chill, to say, ha, huh, okay. I need a break. I'm going to go take a walk around the parking lot or walk to the bathroom, wash my hands, whatever it is. I'm going to kind of chill here for a second and get my ducks in a row so that I can get back in there and get um, something done. Now, the last thing that I'll tell you about taking a break is sometimes when you negotiate, you can't foresee that, um, you know, when you plan for a negotiation, you can't foresee an available option, right? Because if you're really doing a good job and you're really thinking outside the box, you're going to come up with some ideas about which you have no idea. You know, maybe the school suggests a program and you've never heard of the program. Or maybe you realize that you need an IEE, but you had not thought about an IEE. And so you need to know the cost of the IEE or something like that. Sometimes a break needs to be longer. Sometimes you need to take a break that is, you know, Longer than just a five minute break, it might be, you know, I, I think we should probably discontinue today's meeting so I can go out and do a little bit of research. I can go look at that new educational setting or I can research this particular reading program or math program or I can go tour that school that you want for me to see, you know, kind of all of that stuff. But sometimes it's something you can do in a quick call. You know, I wonder if I could get a hold of the receptionist at my child's therapist's office and, and get a quick answer to that. That kind of thing. So sometimes you need a break in order to get information because you never want to make decisions in an IEP meeting in a vacuum of information. You always want to make sure that you know as many details about the decisions that you're making so that you feel informed and empowered and really solid in the decision that you ultimately make. So sometimes taking a break will allow you to go figure stuff out, like finding somebody to do that IEE, asking a particular question, looking up a law, that kind of thing. So number one, take a break. Number two, reframe. You're in the meeting. It's not going well. Um, people just don't seem to understand you. And you've done a great job at expressing your interests, your why, the why behind your position. I really think my child needs this particular reading program, or I really think my child needs this particular goal, or I really think that we need to add this particular um, modification or accommodation to the IEP. And the district says, no, we don't think you need it. We don't see the adverse effect or he did well in Spanish this year, or um, he didn't come down here for special education services, he didn't ask for them, so we didn't provide them. And you're like, why are you not understanding me? Because you've done a good job at explaining the why. Here's what you need to do. You need to reframe it. Even if 
you are advocating using interest-based negotiation strategies, the other people at the table still might not hear it the one way that you've described it. And so what you need to do is you need to change the way that you're describing it. And so I will say it in a meeting very deliberately. Okay, let me see if I can describe this in a different way. Let me reframe this for you. I see that you don't understand me, that you don't get my why. And so I'm going to say it a different way. And a big key to this is oftentimes being vulnerable and being like, okay, I was trying to do this very professionally or very um, uh, stoically. And I'm going to be humble here for a second. So if you can instill a little humility when you're reframing, it really does help a whole lot. But basically what you're going to do is you're going to say the same thing, but you're going to say it in a different way. So the thing that I almost always do is I will tell kind of a parallel fable almost. I'll say, okay, so this happened with my particular child or something similar happened with another client of mine. And this was my experience in doing X, Y, and Z. So I'll tell it and I'll express the same interest, but I'll express it from the kind of lens of a different experience, a fable. This is what happened in another case. And what that does is that tells the district or the other people at the table, here's what I'm afraid of. Here's the experience that I'm coming into this with, and I'm afraid that the same thing is going to happen. And because I'm afraid of that, I want for you to assure me that what you're suggesting doesn't include this one component, the component that worries me, the kind of uh, unintended outcome that I have seen happen in real practice. So you're using some kind of um, situational example. Another example, another thing that you could do to reframe is to use an analogy. So you don't have to talk about your child in special education. You could say, you know, if I went to work and I asked work for fill in the blank, then this is what would happen at work. So I'll give you an example. I had a child that was transitioning to um, college, to post-secondary um, school, and the university wanted the client to just give a two or three sentence description of the child's disability. Here's what I have and here's what I need at school. And then the school was gonna implement, you know, this really voluminous um, document that was going to, totally support the child. And the parent came to me and said, I just don't think that there is any way that they are going to be able to support this child entirely if I don't have, you know, more of a say in what happens if we can't really tell the story. And so when I went to the district, and by the way, when I give these examples, I am protecting my client's identity by shifting the, the, um, the, the, the hypothetical information, the, the facts of the case quite a bit. So um, this is not exactly what happened. I'm kind of like making up a story, um, but something similar has definitely happened in my practice. So when I went to that meeting, 
I, of course, started off by saying, here's what's going on um, with the child. You know, here's a, a more thorough description of the child's profile. And here are the accommodations um, that the child will need in order to succeed in your university setting. But more importantly, here's why we think that this support document needs to have more content to it, because that's really why I was hired. And when I did that, I used a work example. I said, you know, in four or five years when this child graduates from your university, the child's gonna go out and get a job. And if, if he or she went to work and said, um, you know, I have dyslexia and I need more time, period. That's all the child said. There is no way that this child with this profile would succeed in this employment setting. And because I had given them the information first and I had really described the child and I had really described the interest, the people at the university were like, well, yeah, you would have to have like an hour long discussion and you'd have to talk to HR and the manager and the manager's manager and maybe colleagues and whatever. And I said, yes, exactly. So if that's the way it's going to work in the work setting and the employment setting, then we need to provide these supports in the university setting too, because think of all the different professors and the tutors and the um, all the different people that are going to support this child here in your university setting, right? So I gave a parallel situation. This is if this happened at work, it would happen this way. Do you agree? Well, of course, they they absolutely thought that would that they agreed with that. Okay, great. Well, then let's translate that situation over here to your particular um, university setting. And the last way that I oftentimes paraphrase or reframe something is to provide three or four concrete examples. So if I'm trying to protect a child that needs a one-on-one -on -one aid or needs additional adult support at school specifically, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the parents, okay, tell me an example of where your child was playing with their, um, their, their peers with typical abilities and where you had to provide more support to your child than your friends had to provide to their kids that have typical abilities. You know, what is different? What are the specific risks in accessing an environment? And so when I do that, I write those down and then I go into the IEP meeting and I say, here are the specific concerns. If we were on a playground, the child does not understand risk. And so the child might, Jack Barlow, for example, <laughs> I will be the client here. Jack Barlow in kindergarten would have jumped right off of that second story, it wasn't that high, but my goodness, the slide at my kid's elementary school is tall. Um, he would jump right off of it or he would shove another kid off of it because the kid was in front of him in line and he wanted to go down the slides to get out of my way. Um, he doesn't understand that hole where the fire pole is and he would have to experience falling from it in order to understand that he could get very hurt coming off of that, um, that hole in the playground without better support. So that's one example of a time that he can't play independently. He needs somebody on the playground or very close to him on the playground. He also has a, you know, look right here. He's got this diagnosis of ADHD. And so he is very, very capable of doing a 15 minute kindergarten worksheet. 
However, in my life, he has never done a 15 minute worksheet independently. I'm telling you right now, he's in fourth grade and he's just now doing it. So in kindergarten, I, I would have had to have said, never, never has he done it. And I work with him. Every single day we do a handwriting page and every single day we do a math page and he has never done one independently. And here are the supports that I have to give him. Sometimes they're nonverbal. I can just point at the paper. Sometimes I have to um, really get him prepared to learn, conditioned to learn. And so I have to take him aside and we have to do some heavy work. You know, we have to do some animal walks like a crab walk or, or some yoga. Um, I've got to adjust the environment for him to be able to even sit down to work. And so if I was in a classroom and I was a gen ed teacher, I wouldn't be able to give Jack that one-on-one -on -one attention that gets him ready to work and gets him to continue to be on task for just a 15 minute task because I've got 21 other kids in the room that I also need to support and monitor much less actually teach. So that's another example of a way that he needs one-on-one -on -one support. And now let's talk about the cafeteria. He can't open anything in his lunchbox. And I don't think I can send an open chocolate milk in a lunchbox with a kindergartner because you're gonna have chocolate milk leaking through your classroom. And so even if I sent stuff in parchment paper instead of a Ziploc bag, he still is gonna need somebody to open his milk and you know, probably in kindergarten, I can't really remember. I know in preschool, he needed hand over hand assistance to actually eat with a spoon and a fork and um, you know, put a straw in his Capri Sun and that kind of thing. So these are the specific supports that he needs. And so I've given kind of three examples there to say in three different settings, right? Classroom, cafeteria, academic. And I would think of even more and say, these are the supports that he needs specifically. This is what's gonna happen in your school if he doesn't have that support. You know, I'll tell you one funny story. When I walked in to observe his preschool, <laughs> I said, that lady's too loud, your fish is gonna die, and something else that I can't remember right now. But the teacher hit the fish like on um, just a, a bookcase that was totally right at the kind of level where a, a preschool sized kid would just shove it from chest forward like a chest pass in basketball. And I was like, you're gonna have to move that fish because Jack will really want to shove that off of that bookcase. The fish lived and it stayed where it was. I think that was like her goal of the year. So you're reframing. You're saying it in one way, but they haven't understood it. And so you're paraphrasing it. You're giving examples. You're using analogies. You're saying the same thing in a different way in order to get to a yes, in order to try to be understood. You're not just droning on and on and on like a mom that's annoying. You're saying it in a different way so that they seem to understand. Now, if they understand and they still say no, then you're an impasse and you might need to um, approach this differently. Okay, so number one, we took a break. Number two, we reframed. I'll say that again, we reframed. And number three, ask questions. If you feel like you are stuck in a meeting, ask questions of the other side. 
And the real idea in the questions is to get the other side to express their interests, the why behind their positions. They might simply say, we don't do it that way, or we don't see it that way, or no. And if they are only saying no, you need to ask questions so that you understand their why. And you also might be able to ask questions so that you get them to understand your perspective, so that you get them to understand. So in the example of um, the playground equipment, I might say, well, you know that slide is really high, right? Yeah. Okay, and you know that um, Jack is impulsive because you saw that in his evaluation report, right? Yeah. Okay, and so you um, know that he has difficulty with peers, right? Yeah. Okay, so then does it make sense to you that he would have those difficulties with peers and might shove somebody off of that tall slide and somebody could get hurt? Yeah, and you don't want that, right? Okay, so how else are we going to support him? And so it's all of these questions and you even end with a question. How else, if we don't do it with one-on-one -on -one support, how else are we going to support him to keep him safe and to keep his peers safe in this environment. So you're asking questions. Maybe you're having an inclusion discussion. If I'm in an inclusion discussion and the and the district just really is not supporting an inclusive environment, they really want the child to spend more time in a self-contained classroom or a more restrictive setting. I usually say, okay, Jenna, teacher, tell me your schedule. What is your schedule? And I start in the schedule, I talk about this a lot more in my inclusion workshop that is um, for sale on the website, but I start with the schedule and then I kind of step-by-step piece this kid into that schedule. I piece this student and the student's profile into that schedule. Where could you succeed in the schedule? And then I follow these other steps to say, okay, what, tell me about this, tell me about that, tell me about this, tell me about that. And I take that information and I build them the golden bridge to say, aha, here would be an ideal schedule for this child. And then we do more. So I ask, tell me about your schedule. Maybe it's behavior. And maybe in a behavior case, I feel like the school doesn't really know how to support the child. And that's really their interest. We don't know, we're stuck. That's honestly, if I've got a behavior case that's kind of crazy, that's usually the problem. The school doesn't know how to support the child. And I think that the child is fully capable of being supported in the setting where the child is currently, but we need supports to help the school understand the child better. <laughs> so that's, I get a lot of those cases. And so what I'm gonna ask the school is, all right, give me one behavior. Okay, and then they say, the one behavior is, elopement. The kid runs away. If we get out math, the kid runs away. Okay. What do you think the function of the elopement is? The, the, does the elopement only happen in math class? Yes. Okay. So what do you think the antecedent is? Is it just math? Is it the environment in the math room? Is it the math teacher? Is it that that's the only place where the kid uses a pencil? 
And um, this student particularly dislikes pencils because there's a sensory thing with the graphite touching the paper. What do you think the antecedent is to the behavior? And if they can't answer that, that usually leads to more discussion where we finally land at, well then it sounds like we need to do a functional behavioral assessment to see what the function of the behavior is. And we need to take some really great ABC data so that we can figure out how to better support this child in the classroom. So I've done it by asking questions, right? When does this happen? Where does it happen? Why do you think it happens? Just taking a stab at it. Who's around the child when it happens? Is this the only place where the child uses a pencil? You know, kind of think about what you think the function might be and ask specific questions about that so that you can kind of lead them to understanding, oh, maybe it's just about the pencil. Well, that could be easy to fix, you know? So what's the function, but then kind of dig into, could it be this, could it be that? What if it's eligibility? You wanna ask about the academic effect. You know, most of the time eligibility, you get a diagnosis, that's the easy part. But then the school might say, well, it doesn't affect the child's um, performance here in school. And so you want to ask about that. So dyslexia eligibility is a very common um, topic. You know, a lot of children with dyslexia are identified as having dyslexia, but then the school does not um, want to put the child on an IEP. I don't know if they want to or don't, but that's just kind of a topic that happens in um, the specific learning disability community. An early marker for dyslexia is an inability to kind of play with language, that phonological processing piece. You know, a child doesn't rhyme. If we aren't playing with language and we don't really process the phonemes of the language, the parts of the language, then we might have dyslexia. And so I might say, okay, so, and remember, I'm trying to get to academic impact. How does this impact the child's learning? So do you notice first grade teacher, second grade teacher that the child isn't rhyming? Yeah, I noticed that the child can't rhyme. Okay, so like if you did Dr. Seuss week and you stopped in the middle of a book, um, you know, Sam I am, Sam I am, I do not like that Sam I am. Do you like green eggs and ham? Does the child know that it is ham? So is the child playing with words? Can the child do patterns of words? Can the child pick up on those kinds of patterns? And if the answer to those is both no, okay, well, what in the second grade curriculum do you notice that the child can't do as a result of that phonological processing impairment. Are we picking up prefixes and suffixes? Do we understand that un, un, will take something to the negative, unnerved or unscrewed, that we are unscrewing it, that we're taking it out instead of screwing it in? Does a child understand those little parts of words? Because to me, that seems like a second grade skill, or maybe even something more basic than a second grade skill. And so how would that affect the child's ability to access the classroom environment? And I'll ask questions like that to kind of not only lead them to like, oh, okay, that makes sense. 
and to, and to open their eyes to the child-specific profile, but also so that I understand how they understand it. So I'm asking questions to try to get to an agreement so that I can help to explain our perspective, but so that the district can tell me more about their perspective. So those are the three ways that I very practically will address an impasse, a sideways meeting when, when discussions seem to just get rhetorical and spinny and everybody's like, you're not understanding me. First of all, I'll take a break. Second of all, I will reframe. And third of all, I will ask questions. We will get into this kind of stuff far more in detail with more formal analysis, actual strategies and book reviews and commentary that I have learned in my study of negotiation skills. But these are very, very practical strategies. If you want to learn more, stay tuned, follow me on social media, join my email list. I will be announcing that formal advocacy training sometime in the summer of 2021, and I would love to have you join me for that. I'll see you next week, same time, same place.